From The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to Darnell Elmore about the questions we all have in life. Life's biggest questions. And if that sounds overly grandiose or dramatic, please know that I mean every single word. And I think you'll see why. Darnell is a writer and thinker, a leading voice for Black people, for queer people. He is the author of the incredible book called No Ashes in the Fire, and also the brand new host of the podcast, Being Seen. Today, we'll talk about spirituality, finding meaning or not in this current moment, how his relationship to his faith has changed, and also the imprint that HIV has had on his life. For so long, he says, HIV felt like this inevitable thing, and that has colored many aspects of his life. And then just to note, you'll hear some construction noises at the very beginning of the podcast and a few other times throughout. I promise they do not last long. We are recording these from home for a reason that I know that you know, so I'll skip the rest of that spiel and cut right to the interview. So without further ado, this is Darnell. You know, it was not until reading your book that I learned the full extent of the role that religion has played in your life. And you even have a master's in theological studies from Princeton Theological Seminary. At that time, did you think you were going to become a minister? Yeah, I I was a church boy. I, I should also be very clear that I was a church boy who maintained a theology that was queer antagonistic, even as I was coming into myself as a queer person. Part of the reason why I went to seminary was to be able to have to be in a space where I could ask the type of questions that I did not necessarily feel empowered or safe enough to ask within the churches that I had been part of. So I went to seminary because I'm like, at least I can be here and like lift up all of the sort of Aquarius-esque questions that I have about what I'm being taught. And I always say that seminary really saved me, my ability to push back against what I consider to be violent theologies, theologies that kill, kill the spirit, and which can often lead, in, in, at least in my case, to incidences of um, suicidal ideation because you're taught to believe that this God who is love somehow withholds their love from you. So yeah, I went there to really save myself and was saved by being in a space where I could actually dissent and critique the theologies and all the things I have been taught. And today, do you subscribe to organized religion or is it just more general? Yeah, I mean, I've not been at a church in a long time because people know that I am, I consider myself spiritual. I consider myself as someone who maintains a big, vast understanding of like spirit, but I'm not connected to any denomination. I'm invited sometimes to preach, which is interesting, but even I think my interpretation of the gospel or at least the messages that I offer are much more grounded or shaped by justice and, and, and love for those that would otherwise be kept out of that love within Christian, some Christian traditions. I think like one of the saddest parts, I, I guess for me, I'll say sad, of Christianity and other religions not accepting queer people is that on the whole, queer people, I think, want these things. We are very spiritual. Yeah. I mean, there's this idea that to somehow like you, to be queer, to be trans, to be non-binary, to be 
to be sexually othered in not just the U.S., but around the world is to somehow not be a person who does not have thoughts, ideas, connections to spirit, to God, to, to God's to to religious traditions, to practices. I mean, it w- it took a lot for me to leave the church that was that was family for me. But I wasn't willing to be in a space that was harming me, even even if I loved all of those things, even while I missed all of those traditions. You know, in this current moment that is bonkers and only seems to grow more so every day. <laughs> is that a fair assessment? It is a fair assessment. I can't get rid of the bags under my eyes because at night I'm just like. Another shit show has happened. I, I need a glass of whiskey. To, to borrow a reference, we're talking about like Christianity. You, you know, folk are so afraid about internal damnation and what we might call a hell. For many people, living under the conditions of anti-black violence, of queer and trans antagonism that's legislated, you know, the caging that is happening to undocumented people, the political rhetoric that is no longer rhetoric, always been rhetoric. You know, there's always been sort of white supremacist ideology. Always, we always had those systems, but you, you know that it, it's just absolutely, absolutely, as you said, bonkers. And for many people, you want to talk about hell. You know, for a lot of people, this is what that feels like, and it, it is it's daunting. So, with everything that you said and are feeling right now, are you also feeling like your relationship to your faith has changed? I literally, I will just be very honest. I mean, maybe last week I was driving with my partner. And I'm sitting there in silence and I'm like, you know, I still pray. And I'm sitting here like too, um, I, I have a hard time reconciling how all of the various forms of violence, this this material hate um, that so many folk who exist on the edges of the edges of the margins or exist on the underside of what Bell Hooks calls white supremacist heteropatriarchal capitalism, right? Like, how in the world, like, how is it possible to happen in a grand scheme of a, of, like, I, I, I was, I had trouble reconciling, reconciling a theology that says that God is present in the midst of all of this. That somehow the people who continue to seem to lose are the folk who are most vulnerable. That to me is skewed. And that's the, that's the actual problem of like most Christian theologies, this idea that the person who suffers the most is somehow upheld as a person who is closest to the God image. No, 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 no. That is a psychology that makes possible, makes possible for some people to believe that we ought to endure suffering by virtue of, by violence in order to somehow be redeemed or to, in order for somehow to be seen. As, and that to me is problematic. So if anything, I have, I've, I've had more questions. And do you find that there is a part of the teachings of the church that you turn to most often? The, the notion of community, this year has been a storm within a storm within a storm within a storm. But I'm also very cognizant that for Black, queer, trans, non-binary people, this ain't, it's new ain't and it ain't. And I know that I am here because of the community of people who surround me. That, to me, is an aspect of of spiritual tradition or spirituality that I find remarkable. And also a notion of right critique and, you know, to, to talk about, like, the Christ in a way that absence that story, Jesus from, like, not being a person who was actually hung on a cross, the cross 
was an instrument of the state that it would put people on. It was a tactic of a nation state. It, it was the jail cell. It was the gas. It was the gas chamber. It was Abu Ghraib. It was it was the detention center. It was the cage. And that is what Jesus was placed on. That is what the Roman Empire placed Jesus on. Right. So in my mind, if, if there is a political message in the gospel, it is, in fact, and I hate to sort of go here, like the go here on, a, on that sort of Christianity when there's so much. But if Christ was killed by the state and rose up again, you know, when I think about abolitionism, as it's talked about in this moment, that's what I think about. You know, abolitionism is not, as Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says, a scholar, an activist who is very pivotal to our understandings of abolition. It's not just about the removal of the things that harm us, right? A naming of those things and a removal of them, a you know, a destruction of them. It's about creating what needs to go in the place of the shit that doesn't work. And for me, that is what's offered through that through that theology. All of that reminds me about something that you wrote about what happened in your hometown in New Jersey. In 1971, a man named Horatio Jimenez was beaten up and assaulted by two police officers, and those injuries ultimately led to his death. A protest and an uprising occurred after, and your family was there and a part of it, but then afterward they never talked about it. You write that your family mastered the art of locking away secrets. So to me, it feels like one of the biggest changes in everything that's happening right now with police violence is that we're finally talking about it. At the dinner table, yes, but at this massive scale. Do you find that people are more willing to have these conversations now? Yeah, I, I mean, totally. And people were having discussions then, you know. Um, we have at our disposal a range of new tools through which we can engage. You know, in 1971, my mama didn't have Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. You know, at that time, they were probably getting most of their information from that, you know, mainstream TV, news, which never really, you can never really get a counter or a different narrative that way. Now we have access to so many more outlets through which we can engage people outside of our, our own small knit communities to talk and also be emboldened by the examples, right? Being emboldened and empowered to, to lift up our voices because we get to see other people do it throughout the world. Let, they might be kids. You know, you might go on Instagram, someone's live or real, and there's a 10-year-old person who is like naming a thing as it is. And I can't imagine that that isn't what compels many people to find a courage to speak up today. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to drag social media for a lot of really valid reasons, but there are also a lot of incredible things that have also come out of social media. There's good and bad, but as a person who has been part of a groundswell, uh, a community of movement builders and organizers throughout this country over the last several years, I know very well that social media was a tool that was helpful for all of us to assert our voices, to speak back against mistruths, so much so that mainstream media outlets started finding people to, and their stories would be pinned to the just the tweets that someone would be writing from the ground, say in like Ferguson or like in Baltimore. And the media outlets are still very much like they're also corporate entities. So there's that, right? So it's, it's, it's one of those conundrums. It's one of those conundrums. Going back to your family for a second, you wrote about how your mom was 16 when she had you. And, you know, when you're growing up, your mom is just your mom. When did you first realize how close the two of you were in age? 
Yeah, I mean, first I'll say my mom is one of the people I count as a hero. She is, she's everything to me. She's not with all her stuff, with all her complexities. No mama is, no person is, uh, but she's certainly someone whose life is a testament to what it, what it can, what it means to like love oneself into, into fuller being. I, I, I was really made aware of our closeness and age when I was a student in first grade. So back in the day, like I'm over here. So like back in the day, you get these textbooks, you have to like sign your name on, uh, on the line. One, like there are multiple lines at the front of the book, you sign your name in it to say, so to signify ownership. And I signed my name, like scribbled, that's what my little first grade handwriting, and I saw my mom's name was in it. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Either this book is mad old, <laughs> or, you know, like, because then uh, my, one time when I was, um, Mrs. Banks was our, my teacher, kept us after school, and my mom was downstairs waiting. And when I got downstairs, she said, Miss Banks used to do that with us too. And I was like, what? Miss Banks is either like, a thousand, you're either a thousand, but then it became clear, very clear to me. I'm like, no, she was just here. And also when she would pick me up, uh, when she, we have to go to parent-teachers conferences, they would mistake her for my, for my sister. And she's like, no, I'm his mother. And as a, as a young kid, I actually prided myself in having a mom who was young, right? Because it was like, she was like big sister, but mom, but like, and it's nice because I feel like I got to experience so many lives that she's lived because in ways that the world critiqued her for having a kid young not married without a lot of resources the benefit from that is that i got to see like i've watched i don't know how many years of her life live out now she's she's 60 so 44 years right like of a life that's a beautiful thing that i was able to, to witness I think too, like, I love that book story. Well, I think the book story is a great example of like, it, it sounds so sweet. Like that is a beautiful moment as a first grader being like, whoa, I'm holding the same book that my mom held and learned from. And then, you know, in the book, you also point out that, you know, once you get past the sweetness, it, there was like a lack of funding too, that made this book sit in this classroom for like 99 years. <laughs> and, you know, part of the, part of what I tried to do in the book is to add context for the reader that can better help them think through the personal narrative. It was really important for me. And it's, you know, and that's the danger in like writing books. You know, I was like, I know this might be, some people might get to these parts like, ugh, drowner, you know, like, but it was important because unless that context is named, the, the danger is people would read that and do the woe is me without really having a clear sense of how in that particular case, inequity works within, within um, racial, gen sexual, gender, economic inequity makes itself tangible within educational systems. Like I needed people to know like Camden City Schools, not because it was a school full of black and um, Latinx kids or who were working poor, but because of the calculated decisions that have been made by power holders made it possible for me to be in first grade having the same book my mama did. And I appreciate that because it also underlined the fact that these are not wild coincidences that are only happening to Darnell. It's part of larger systems. You write about like the why of your experiences, that there are these larger systems of oppression that exist in our country. And I just wonder, you know, this is your story, but while you're doing that work to contextualize your story and doing that research, was there anything that you learned that surprised you? I learned lots of things. But the one thing that surprised me is 
I was Googling for my great-great-grandmother or my paternal grandmother and found in a newspaper a foreclosure notice regarding her home. You know, you want to look in a newspaper and see good story. You want to see, you know, a name mentioned for some accomplishment or something, not um, the reality that here was a Black woman who had taught herself to read, who had migrated up north from down south to build a family who somehow saved money to to buy a home who who lost it. You know, but that story is not uncommon. It's not uncommon. It's the story of like federal housing policy, redlining and a whole and a whole bunch of other things within the context of the US that only brought to sharp relief by virtue of like this being a family member how palpable those structural inequities played themselves out in, in the lives of my family and how that had impact upon our generation. Another thing that you wrote that had a big impact on you was HIV AIDS. And I bring that up because you say that being gay and AIDS were synonymous for you while you were growing up, that it felt inevitable in many ways. And you say that one of the reasons why you didn't use protection when having sex was that it felt like you were going to get HIV no matter what. So what was the point? And I just have never heard someone articulate that feeling so clearly before. Yeah. If you grow up in, in the atmosphere that you're breathing in, the oxygen, the air that you're breathing in, is that AIDS is both a consequence of, a, a moral consequence of, of a bad decision, that it is, it is a consequence of sin, a consequence of, of gay men's actions. And that's all you hear. <laughs> and, you know, part of what was, I think, and, and no, not I think, I knew was in my psyche was that I grew up very early on thinking this is something, because I am gay, therefore AIDS is going to be my lot. Now, imagine what that does to how that factors into our decision makings, our, our ideas of self our ideas of who we are as people. So like, I literally would be like, well, this is, it was almost like you're trying to sort of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that wasn't one, a, a prophecy that we announced over ourselves, but one that the world did, that the state did, that the church did, that families did, that neighbor, you know, I would be shocked when I would get to be tested and somebody tell me that I was negative and I would go, what? How? How? Like, I literally would be like, what? Um, which isn't to say that I was trying to put myself in a position to, to contract HIV, but it was to say that the, the psychology of stigma, like the, the, the weightiness of stigma, stigmatization and like self-hatred that was grown out of what was, ha what was being taught to me in the world, totally influenced how I moved in, this, in those spaces and how I thought about myself. It also just makes me worry about how we discuss AIDS in the Black community today. I think the current stat is that 50% of Black gay men will get HIV in their lifetimes. That is such a large percentage. What I got from reading your book was we need to frame this not as inevitability, but as a means to like educate further to say how you can not get it. And I don't hear us doing that. You know, that's one of the things that I try to press a lot the sort of danger warning narrative doesn't help with because what we what we're what we're saying is don't you do this don't you do that as opposed to what is it that's at the core 
of yourself. When we talk about like even like safe sex, people don't really talk about that. I want I ask questions like, what is it about like sex without a condom that you like? What what does that make you feel? What are you what are you seeking out? What are you missing? What are your desires? What's your intimacy? Like those are a different set of questions that can lead to a different framing that's different than just like don't do this don't like that's that's not asking me what do, what what is that black men and and we're not a monolith but like as you know particularly as black men who are engaged with other men in the world what do you need in your relationship what makes your heart beat what makes you feel safe and like that framing is very different than a, in the framing of an inevitability inevitability that i often believe clouds people's mind and almost make them feel like i mean what else is there but this as an end Growing up and associating being gay and AIDS, it's not something you can just like take off like a jacket. And I just wonder how often do you still think about it today? Not as much as I did before, but that may have something to do with just like a big part of my fears and had much to do with my sexual activity. So see how like it was all about sexual activity. Like when I was out there just fucking every, you know, I'm just like out there fucking around because <laughs> that's, that's what people do. Like I was living my life, you know, that was on my mind. And it's like, I think about it in a different way now. I think about a care of the body and I think about things like consent. I'm thinking about intimacy and like what it looks like to create a, a loving, caring, even maybe it doesn't have to be loving, but like a hot sexual experience that allows for mutual consent, that allows for for two people or whoever else, right? Like make decisions about their bodies that can that that can mitigate against harm. But I'm also an HIV negative person who at for a lot of for a lot of years felt guilty that I had I somehow feel like I escaped a thing that a lot of people I love was not able to. And that's not to say that I that I can escape that. Right. I'm thoughtful about the realities of HIV and its impact on us, but in ways that I made it a God or at least inevitable, overwhelmingly daunting thing in my life that so much so that it drove my reactions, my ways of being, my forms of relation that, yeah, I'm in a different place. And before I let you go, I do want to make sure we talk about your podcast since it is brand new. Can you tell everyone what kind of conversations you're going to be having? Yeah, I'm so excited about the podcast because it is a space curated for the centering really in celebration and the holding of complexity of the lives of Black, gay, queer, trans men. And in a moment where many of us believe that Black lives indeed matter, even though we don't need that reminder, it's a wonderful intervention to assert that some of those lives, some of those people are queer are trans, are bi, are non-binary, and their lives matter too. Their stories matter. The contributions that they that they offer to culture, to society, to movements matter. And we now have curated a space in which we can bring some amazing folk, well-known and not so well-known, who are, in my opinion, game-changing folk. All right, that sounds amazing. So the podcast is called Being Seen. And then last question, when are we going to get another book? So I'm working on it. Working on it now. The goal is, I'm hoping it'll be out, what's this, 2022. Okay, early stages. Yeah, I have, yep, at the early stage, have a year to write. 
it's it's the creative nonfiction that is unpacking, exploring manhood and masculinity. So I hope folk will be ready for what I have to offer. I can't wait. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. And that was Darnell L. Moore. Again, his new podcast is called Being Seen. You can find it wherever you're listening to this one. Now, if you enjoyed the interview and are feeling generous, please help us spread the word on social media. Doing that is one of the biggest ways you can help us grow. The show is on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQPod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. We love hearing from you every week, so please keep that up. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our work at advocate.com and glad.org. All right, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week. Bye.